Okay. Uh, so at, at the beginning of the series, we talked about this, that there's an increasingly huge group of people called the nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, that when you check off a box as to your religious affiliation, people are no longer checking Christian, Protestant, Catholic, and they're not even checking the box that says atheist. They're just saying none of the above, nuns. And that's the biggest group right now. It's the fastest growing group in the history of America. Okay, there, it's a group of people who are saying, I'm smart enough to not be an atheist because I know the implications that come with that, but I'm also not impressed by the church. And so I'm kind of in the middle, so I'm just going to check the box that says none because, and, and we talked about this. We, we talked about how if we were to look at the reasons why people are becoming nuns, it's because they don't like the church anymore. And, and so we looked at it and said, well, okay, where are these people coming from? They're all converting into this group called nuns. So where are they converting from? Is it the Catholic church? Is it, is it the Muslim community? Is it the Buddhists? You know, is it the atheists? Where is it coming from? Majority of them are coming from people like us, the Protestant church, the evangelicals. So like, well, what's going on here, right? So what I've been talking about for the past few weeks is, well, maybe it's not the fault of them. Maybe it's our fault as a church. And maybe it's not just the church. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe it's the pastor's fault. Maybe we haven't been teaching what the Bible has been teaching about what Christianity ought to, ought to look like. So I've been challenging everybody, let's, let's move on from faith 1.0, and let's move over to this, which I've been calling faith 2.0. When you put a point .0 on something, it looks more official. That's why there's a 2.0. Okay, and so we want to move every, so basically what I'm saying is, if you are considering or already have moved on from Christianity, from the church, and you're saying, I'm leaving this behind, the situation and, and maybe the thing I'm trying to say here is this, that maybe you have moved on needlessly because maybe you were right all along. So here's the issue. This is where the whole journey starts. When I look, about, look at the story of Jesus, when we look at his story, when we look at his life, you find out that there's a lot of people who travel far, and this is before the time of cars, okay, or bicycles. People travel for days just to get a glimpse of who Jesus was, and when they see Jesus, he was so irresistible that he, they were like, you know what, I'm willing to let go of everything just to follow him. It's like Jesus was appealing. But for some reason, Christians, who are supposed to be the representation of Jesus here today, were not as appealing anymore. So the question I want to ask is this, why is the church unappealing? And so in the first week, we talked about some different, you know, surveys from the nuns. And they said, oh, we don't like their political stance on certain things. Oh, we don't like uh, uh, their stance on, you know, uh, I, we don't trust in religious organizations. And we looked at all that. And we could just say, yeah, the problem is the church. But maybe it's deeper rooted than that. Maybe there's something else at play here. Maybe it's our theology. Maybe the way that we're running church today wasn't, in, wasn't the kind of church that Jesus intended for us to have t 2,000 years ago, right? So we've been looking at faith, Christianity as a whole, and we've been deconstructing the things that we think are excess, meaning that has nothing to do with what Jesus talked about. And so we, we're getting rid of, one of the weeks we talked about the different kinds of gods that we believe in that we shouldn't be believing in anymore. We talked about how some people give up their faith because they think that only good things should happen to good people. And when bad things happen to good people, you're like, I can't believe in God anymore because bad things are happening to good people. And we said, that's not a Bible God. That's not a God that you see in the Bible. So we've been cutting off all these things. And for some of you, it's been uncomfortable, right? Some of you are like, when I was in the fifth grade in Sunday school, I said yes and accepted Jesus into my life under the notion that that's the God that I worship. And in the past few weeks, you've been 
getting rid of those gods and now I don't have a foundation. And so a few weeks ago, we started rebuilding that foundation. We talked about how God at his core is love. So today, I want to talk about how, what can we do to make our church more appealing. And it's not having a better greeting team, although greeters, you did a great job today, thank you. <laughs> it's not the worship team. Worship team did a wonderful job, thank you. Okay, yay, good, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's why I come, not me. <laughs> Preacher, me, and everybody else who preaches here, you know, it's not because of us. Okay, we're not talking about, hey, let's have better lighting systems and that's how people are going to show up to church. We're not talking about the superficial things. We're talking about how can we make the more, church more appealing? Well, maybe it has to do with our core beliefs. And so today we're talking about our core beliefs. And maybe if we get that right, then maybe our church will become more and more appealing to the people around us. So I want to share with you of maybe, I'm going to share a story and maybe some of you guys can relate to this story because this is probably the way that you were raised in your faith. If you grew up in a Christian home, maybe you could relate to this, okay? You grew up thinking that there's a set of rules in Christianity that you're supposed to follow. There's some, a list of do's and there's a list of don'ts, right? And if you do something you're not supposed to do, let's just say you're driving really, really fast and you cut somebody off and, and the guy's honking at you because he's angry at you and you go home not thinking much about it and you get home and you're sitting down, you're eating dinner, you're still not thinking about it, you know, you're getting ready for bed, you're not thinking about it, you lie down and all of a sudden God convicts you. That thing you did today, how you cut that guy off, he was really angry. And you start feeling guilty. Oh, I feel so bad about it. And so you pray. You say, Lord, I am so sorry that I cut that guy off. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And you're like, oh, I feel so much better now. And you go to sleep. Okay, and, and, and the idea here, and this is my term, not anybody else's, it's called vertical morality. Vertical morality is this idea that all that matters is what you and God are, you know, the relationship that you and God share and nothing else. Meaning, as long as we're good, then everything else is good, right? As long as I'm praying, then we're good, right? Yeah, we're good, you know? Like, I could offend you, right? But as long as me and God, we're good, then everything else is good. So even though you wrong some people around you, if you are for asking God for forgiveness, then you're done. You could go to sleep with a clear conscience. And what's interesting about this, okay, I mean, vertical morality, here's a working definition. Um, all, that, all that matters is that I keep peace with God. That's the only thing that matters. And to some of you, that's what Christianity is. That the only thing that matters in this thing called Christianity is that I have a strong relationship with God. That's the only thing. My goal is to make sure that God is happy with me. Why? Well, because if I don't, then, you know, I might not make it to heaven or, you know, like, so this is the main understanding of Christianity. And for a long time in the United States, this was Christianity. And I'm here to tell you this, that this is faith 1.0. And so when you believe in this version of Christianity, okay, I want to make sure I'm okay with God. I want to make sure that I'm not making God angry. I want to make sure that God is happy with me. You inevitably end up asking a set of questions. And one of the questions you ask and I've done youth ministry for 10 years before I became a teaching pastor. So I know that this question is on the minds of a lot of people, okay? In this version of Christianity, the question you ask is this. Is blank a sin? Hey, cots, 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 cots. Like, yeah, what is it? Um, I was thinking of doing this. Is this a sin? It's like, yeah, that's a sin. It's like, well, well what, if I, what if I didn't do that one part, but I did everything else? Would, would that be a sin? Um, I, you know, and you probably have to, you've probably done this in your own mind before, right? You're like, you're wondering, uh, like, for example, in, in one of my youth groups, 
I was driving two boys, and one of the boys started saying, can I use this word? Is that a curse word? It's like, yeah, it's a curse word. Well, what if I change the letter, the last letter, into something else? Then is it, is it a curse word? And, and I'm like, okay, so what you're trying to ask me is this, right? Is this, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? I mean, isn't that what we're really asking? Like, I want to have fun. I want to have, like, a, like, freedom to do whatever I want. But I also want to make sure that me and God, we're good, you know? And so this is what, we, what happens. Um, there's a famous guy who, who passed away about a few years ago. His name is Dallas Willard. He said this, that this version of Christianity is called the gospel of sin management. And this is no way that we should be living our lives. Because if you live your life according to sin management, you will always lose because you can never manage your sins to that degree, right? And you're like, well, if this isn't what we're supposed to be living by, and for some of you, this is how you were raised, okay? And, you know, it's okay. As a childhood faith, this is okay. But as an adult, this is not okay. As you were raised this way, and now I'm telling you this isn't how you should be living your faith, the question that's in your mind is, well, where did this come from? Is this even biblical? And the answer is yes, it is biblical. It is biblical, but it's only 60% biblical. What I mean by that is of the entire Bible, about 60% of the Bible talks about this version of Christianity. And that old ver- that, 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 that section, okay, is actually called the Old Covenant. Or we like to call it Old Testament. The word testament means covenant. So in case you don't know what the word covenant means, it means like a contract. God had a contract with the nation of Israel. There's a whole land where a bunch of, you know, where God's chosen people are living, the Jews, okay? And he said, I have, a, I have a deal to make with you guys. It's like, yeah, what is it, God? It's like, okay, I will bless you as long as you obey me. And so if you had that kind of contract in place, of course you're going to end up in a situation where you're always making sure, like, are we still good? Our contract is still valid? Okay, we're good, right? Okay, and so you're always asking God, are you happy with what we're going through right now? Did I cross the line? Am I sinning? Okay, if I did, I want to come back on this, you know. And so inevitably, the question always ends up being, like, how, you know, how close can I get to the line of sin without actually crossing it? I mean, that's, that's what your faith turns into. It's the gospel of sin management. And in a way, it's really not even a gospel. It's not even good news. It's, it's frustrating, right? So this is what happens. The old covenant is basically God saying, if you obey what I told you to do, and there's a whole bunch of laws, okay, there's 600 plus some people count as 613. There's over 600 rules and laws. And he says, if you keep these commands, these laws, then I will continue to bless you. If you break these laws, then you might be cursing yourselves. And so people were always trying to follow these rules. In other words, vertical morality is a cause and effect type of mentality. If I do this, then God will bless me. If I don't do this, then God will curse me. And that's by the way, if you heard of this thing called prosperity gospel, this is the root. This is where it comes from. If I do the right things, if I pray the right prayers, if I do the right, if I donate the right amount of money, then God's going to bless me, right? And that's where it comes from. It's a very Old Testament way of thinking. And if the church lives according to this way of thinking about our theology, about our, you know, about church, then this makes us extremely, extremely unappealing, extremely unappealing. And the reason why is because it is the anti-gospel. It doesn't represent who Jesus is. So after the Old Testament happens, then the New Testament starts. And the New Testament starts with the main character of the Bible. His name is Jesus. 
And Jesus shows up, and he's going around telling people about maybe there's a new way of doing this. And he's teaching to people. He's sitting down with a group of people. He's walking with a group of people. And wherever he goes, he's preaching this thing called the gospel, the good news. And every once in a while, you'll hear him say this. It has been said, blah, blah, blah. But now I tell you, blah, blah, blah. He's changing the game. He's changing the game. In one instance, these really smart guys show up to Jesus while he's teaching, and then they ask him a question to test him. This is how that story goes. This is from the book of Matthew, chapter 22. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this is a very interesting question, okay? Because in a vertical type of world, okay, where all that matters is between me and God, you have to find out how well you could keep the commands, all the laws. Is that, are you guys following with that? Because this is really important, okay? There are some verses some laws that contradict each other. I'll give you an example. It says that you're supposed to rest on the seventh day, which would be Saturday, okay? So on Saturday, you're supposed to rest. You're not supposed to do any work. But there's also a verse in the Bible that says, if you have a baby, the baby must be dedicated and circumcised on the eighth day. So if you have a baby on Friday, eight days after that will end up being Saturday. It's not a trick question. Saturday. So, okay, just making sure you guys are awake. Okay. So you have to work on a Saturday to take care of the baby, right? You gotta do the Simpsonip and praying thing on Saturday. At the same time, you're supposed to be resting on Saturday. So what do you do when, you, when it contradicts each other? What do you do? And so people started asking questions like, well, which command will offend God, like which, breaking which law will offend God less? And so this idea of what is the greatest commandment was, became the big question because depending on which rabbi you followed, they would have a different greatest commandment. So no matter what happens, do not break this commandment because this commandment, this command, this law is God's most favorite. This is the most important one. So when these people came to Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? They're testing him to see, let's see how legit you are. Let's see which camp you fall into. And so Jesus' answer is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He's basically quoting a passage from Deuteronomy 6. He says, of the the entire Old Testament, the one most important law is Deuteronomy 6. To love your Lord your God with everything. And he was like, oh, so you're in that camp, Jesus. And she's like, wait, 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 wait. I'm not done with my answer. He continues in verse 39. He says, and the second is like it. And when he says second, he's not talking about second in importance. What he's saying is just sequentially I'm putting it second, but in importance is actually equal to the first part. Well, what's, what's as equal as that? He says, this is, he says this, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus chapter 19. It's like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, you just took two verses and you glued them together. Can you do that? As a matter of fact, isn't this kind of blasphemy? Because what you're saying is, love the Lord your God, okay, and love your neighbor. If you put God and neighbor at the same level, isn't that blasphemous? Right? And Jesus says, the first part, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God, by itself is not the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor with love God, that's the greatest commandment. In other words, love God and love neighbor, the two cannot be separated. He says, the, greatest, the one greatest commandment is these two things put together. He says, of the 600 plus laws, if you were to just condense it all into one, it would be a combo of these two put together. 
And everyone's kind of scratch, scratching their heads like, okay, Jesus, I, I, I don't know if that's ever been done before. I, you know, as far as we know, historically, we don't know any other rabbi who actually those, put those two verses together until Jesus. So Jesus is doing this thing where he's like, this is the greatest commandment. Love God, that's a vertical thing, and love others is a horizontal thing, right? And he's putting these two together, and they're like, these people are like, I don't understand. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? Now, Jesus kind of stops teaching this for a little while because he wants it to sink in. But years later, maybe about a year and a half later, Jesus is about to be arrested because he's getting on some people's nerves, right? And the night of his arrest, he sits down with his 12 disciples and he looks at them and he says, remember that thing I taught you guys about the greatest commandment? It's like, yeah. It's like, well, I want to um, update that. Like, what do you mean? There's one thing I want to teach you guys that's going to take this complicated two command as one command thing I just want to give you a command that's just one. Like, oh, okay, well, what is it? John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. Now, the disciples like, that's not new. What are you talking about that's new? It's like, no, 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 I didn't finish yet. The next part is a new part. Like, oh, what's the next part? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. What does he mean by that? He's looking around his 12 disciples. He says, Nathaniel, remember the day that I met you? Yeah? Remember when I met you and I said I'm from Nazareth? You said, what good could come out of Nazareth? You dissed me, my family, and my entire town, and I still befriended you. It's like, Matthew, remember you're a traitor to the nation? Nobody wants to be around you. As a matter of fact, the people who are with you are, all, are also outcasted because you're connected to them. Like, nobody wanted to be with you because you had this ancient version of cooties and and i still reached my hand out to you and said come follow me remember that it's like yeah i remember that it's like remember the gentiles as jews we're not supposed to mix with gentiles remember how it helped so many of those people out even though they're considered to be unclean it's like yeah yeah i remember seeing you do that it's like peter remember when i first met you you call yourself a fisherman you can't even catch fish right like and i still befriended you like remember how in this culture women are usually like Place, especially if you're a widow, you're, you're placed out, you know, outside of the inner circle. And remember how many people I reached out to? It's like, yeah. I want you, this is the new commandment, I want you to love others in the same way that I have loved you. And the disciples are like, kind of tracked back, like, oh, I'm trying to remember how you loved, oh my gosh, I can't do that. Oh no, <laughs> like, well, it's like, remember, there's two people in my group called the Zealots. These people use violence to get their way. Remember how I reached out to them? Remember the Roman soldiers? They're the state of the enemy. Like they're, they're the enemy of the state. They, these are the people who have taken over our land, took, taken away our family members. Remember them? It's like, yeah. Remember how I healed them? It's like, yeah. Jesus, I don't know if I could do that. You really want me to look? Really, all the 613 laws is now come, comes down to this one thing. Are you sure, Jesus, this is what you want, want us to do? Are you sure this is what you, how, how we're supposed to? Jesus says, yes. As a matter of fact, next verse, by this, loving everybody as I have loved you, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He simplifies this complicated system of all these laws and brings it down to one thing, and he says this is what it means to have a relationship with God if you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. 
the definition of a Christian is a person who loves as Jesus loved. There's no way around it. You're like, oh, Christian, I, I go to church. That makes me a Christian. No, 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 no. If you love as Jesus loves, or at least on the path to doing so, that's the working definition of a Christian. Not a person who prays some prayer sometimes saying, yes, I accept Jesus into my, no, no, no. Yeah, great, you pray that prayer, but are you trying to love? Are you striving to love as Jesus loved? That is the core of who we are. Jesus says this is the core of who we are as Christians, that we love as Jesus loved. Now, so when Jesus says this, what he's really doing is this. He's taking Jesus' new command, elevated the importance of a horizontal morality. So up until now, in Jesus' day, we all cared about Am I connecting with God? Am I, make, am I making sure God is happy? Am I doing everything right to make sure that God is on my side? I want to make sure God is blessing me. All that stuff, right? All of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, you are way too obsessed with the vertical. Let me elevate the horizontal to that level. And people are like, wait, 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 wait. What does this mean? Does this mean that we're not supposed to go to worship service anymore? Yeah, that's crazy, <laughs> Right? So Jesus brings and ushers in this thing called the new covenant. And the new covenant means this, that your relationship with God will be measured by your obedience to Jesus' new commandment. His new command, love others as I have loved you, okay? Your relationship with God is now dependent on how well you keep this one command. In the Old Testament, you have to follow 600 plus commands to see how well you're doing with God. Jesus says in the new covenant, how well you love other people is going to be the thing that's going to tell me how much how you're how you're doing with God. Because if you're just focused on the vertical, you're only doing this. You're thinking, I cut somebody off, but I, I know I'm okay because I just asked God for forgiveness. In this new one, in the new covenant, I got to make amends with people that are wrong, and that is going to tell me how well I'm doing with God. Well, are you sure that's what this verse means, Cots? I mean. Are you, over assessed, are, are you looking too deep into this verse that you missed the point of what Jesus is trying to teach? Like, no. John doesn't talk about this just here. As a matter of fact, towards the end of his life, he writes a letter to a community of believers and says, guys, how well are you guys loving the people around you? Because everything depends on this one thing. This is the letter we call 1 John. Okay, we're going to look at a part of the letter, and it's pretty lengthy, but it's really important for us to know this. Okay, so chapter 2, this is how it starts. My dear children, and John's been overseeing, pastoring these people from afar. He's exiled on an island now. So, so he's been writing letters to this community, and he sees them as his spiritual children. He says, dear, my, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. His name? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice of our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. What he's saying is this. He's like, if you thought sin was the thing that was separating you from God, don't worry. We have an advocate. We have a guy on our team. His name is Jesus, and he died for our sins. He loves you that much. He loves you so much that he died for you so that you could have being right standing with God. Okay, so that's how, that's how he starts his letter. He starts off by saying how much he loves you. And then, next verse, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his, and by his he's talking about Jesus' command, the command that we just talked about, to love others in the way that Jesus loved us. He's saying, the more we live according to that command, the more we get to know the Father, the more we get to know who he is, right? Let's continue. He says this, whoever says, I know him, I know Jesus, but does not do what he commands, love one another, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. It's like, ooh, that's like straight to the point. Yeah, please keep going. 
But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If you want to know how close you are to God, and if your question is, how am I doing with God? How are you doing with God? The answer, how are you doing with keeping this one command? How well are you loving the people around you? You want to know how you're doing this way? Well, how are you doing this way? I'll ask you a new you know, It's like I'm answering that question with a question, right? And then he says, I'm not going to quit talking about this because I'm just, next paragraph, dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. He's talking about the beginning of the church. He says, when the church started 2,000 years ago from our perspective, from his perspective, it was like 70 years ago, right? But when he's, he's like, when the church started at the very beginning, it was founded on this one principle, that you love the people around you in the same way that God loved you, okay? He says, since the beginning, you knew that this one command was the, was the deal breaker, right? And he says, this old command is a message you have heard. It's like, you knew this from the very beginning. When he signed up saying, yes, I want to be a Christian, you knew that everything balanced on this one command, right? Now, the next verse is going to sound a little poetic, okay? So I'll read it, and then I'll explain to you what he means by it. Yet I am writing you a new command, Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. This is what he means by this, okay? He's saying, to you, this command is old, meaning you already knew that it's all about loving others in the way that God has loved you, right? You already knew that. But as you start living that out, the people around you are going to look at it as something new. So to you, it's old, but to everybody else, it's new. And as you live out this truth more and more, the the dark world becomes brighter and brighter and brighter. So he's like, it's, it's, it's starting to, you're starting to glow and it's starting to grow. And then he says this, next verse. Anyone who claims to be in the light, so a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, me. I'm a Christian. I, I claim to be in the light. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, what about me? And he says this. But hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. It's like, oh, but, but John, uh, I, I prayed that prayer. You know, the one that says, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I want to be a Christian. And John would say, what's that? It's like, oh, we call it, you know, in the 21st century, we call it the sinner's prayer. And when we pray it, that means that we became a Christian. John's like, I I don't know what you're talking about. The question I have for you is this. How well are you loving the people around you? Then he continues. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Like, I, I, I thought I was good with God. I thought, I thought my relationship was good. And John says, well, by seeing the way you love the people around you, the way that you're treating the waitress or the waiter that came to your table, the way that you're treating the people, you know, the other basketball team that you don't like so much, you know, treating the people who are in difficult, different political parties, how you treat them, by looking at that, I could tell you that you're not really standing that well with God. Um, in one of my seminary classes, the professor walked in, he sat down, he opened in prayer, and he sat down and looked at us, and he looked at us and he said this, and I would never forget this. He said, how much you love God? Do you want to know how much you love God? He said this. He said, how much you love the person you hate the most is how much you love God. And I'm like, oh man, I shouldn't come to class this time. <laughs> it's like, 
And I'm like, wow. And then he started explaining this verse to us. And I'm like, oh, man. That, okay. And so the question here is, okay, you made it clear for us, John, that the most important thing here as a Christian is how well are we loving the people around us? But do we have to? <laughs> this is really hard. Like, I, I don't know if I want to do this. I, I, why do we have to love the people around us, Jesus? And John would say, but I already told you in the beginning of the, the letter I just wrote you. Let me remind you what that verse is. This is verse two. He says, he, that's Jesus, is atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. What he's saying is this, I love you and I died for you. But do you also know that I died for not just you, but everybody else in the world? The love I have for you, I have also given to everybody else. When you diss the people that I love, then you're also dissing me. It's like the reason why you have to act this way, the reason why this, our relationship with one another, is completely correlating with, with the relationship that we have with God is because the way we deal with the people that Jesus loves is the way that we're dealing with God. So, John is saying this, the new covenant is that Jesus loves everyone. Everyone, no exceptions. Jesus loves everyone. And this is so hard to swallow. So hard. So hard because there's been some instances that's happened in the past week where we're like, I can't believe a human being would do this. And for me to think, and God, you love that guy? Oh, that just makes me sick. How many people died because of that guy? Oh, really? And he says, yeah, I died for that person too. Like what? The new covenant is that Jesus loves everyone. And what also what that implies is this. If you dismiss someone, you're also dismissing Jesus. Your relationship with the people around you is correlated to your relationship with God. That is the new covenant. Love for God is demonstrated through our love for others. And so when it comes to why our church is not as appealing anymore, well, maybe it's this. It's that as long as the church confuses vertical with horizontal, we will continue to make Christianity unappealing for most people. You see, it's not about the lighting, or the greeting team. I mean, that's important. We want to make sure everybody feels welcome in our church. It's not about the food we have afterwards, although that helps. It's not about how well the musicians play. That helps a lot. It's not about how your pastor preaches. I hope that helps a little, right? But maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe at the core of who we are, maybe we got it wrong because we believed in the old covenant for way too long. The old covenant is that all that matters is between me and God. And now the new covenant says, no, no, no. That still matters, but what matters even more is how we treat one another. And you're like, well, maybe John, maybe, maybe we should just cross off all the books that John wrote. Maybe, I, I don't like this. Maybe John is the only one that thinks this in the Bible. Paul the Apostle, the, for one of the first Christian leaders who wrote most of the New Testament, said this too. This is Romans chapter 12, a very famous verse. He says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice? Back in the Old Testament days, people would take an animal, they set it on fire, there's a dead animal on the altar, they burn it up, and the cloud goes to the sky, and that was their worship to God. The vertical, right? But he says, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. 
we're going to do something called a living sacrifice. And I think Paul was feeling like, yeah, I'm pretty clever to come up with that cool term. But 2,000 years later, people were confused. Like, what does that mean? Okay, this is what it means. You yourself is now, we, we are the sacrifice. We are going to be doing acts of love that might actually cost us something. We're going to live our lives sacrificing ourselves to the well-being of everybody else for the rest of our lives. He says, you need to live your life as a living sacrifice. Why? Because it's holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You want to worship God? Don't go to church and sing songs, although that's good. If you really, really want to worship God, try and be a living sacrifice for somebody else. Sacrificially give to a cause. Instead of sleeping in on Saturday mornings, why don't you go and, and help somebody? Oh, but I'm too lazy. I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's why it's called a sacrifice. In verse 2, kind of he reiterates what he's talking about. He says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to start thinking differently. Because up until now, we're so stuck in this idea of vertical that, that we're like, that the old covenant is like this, and now I have to rethink the way that I'm going to worship God. Yes, it requires you to change the way you think. As a matter of fact, Peter one of the 12 disciples who grew up as a Jewish boy, right, and now is a Christian leader, it took him 15 years before he was able to step foot into a Gentile's home. 15 years. He's like, oh, if, if this is what Christian follower, being a follower of Jesus means, then I need to go into the house of somebody that I previously thought was unclean. It took him 15 years to actually do that, right? He had to change the way he thought. Then you will be able to test and improve God's will, his good, pleasing, perfect will. People have asked, Pastor, what, what's the will of God in my life? W- what is God's plan in my life? According to this verse, it says, well, the first step is try to love the people around you as Christ loved you, sacrificially. And once you do that, you're going to be like, oh, I'm living God's will. <laughs> you want to know what God's called you to do? Try loving the people around you and maybe it'll become more apparent. That's what he's saying here. I mean, we love to worship God because we're playing the songs that we want them to play. And there's a song that we don't know. We're like, okay, I'm going to sit down for this one. Cause, right? It's like, that's not worship. As a matter of fact, if you really care about Jesus' worship, then this is the point for you. The greatest form of Jesus' worship is to love others. This is central to Christianity. You could treat everybody like junk outside these four walls. And you come in here and you sing songs and you think you're right with God. Paul says that's not true. He says, when you come to worship service like this, right, you sing songs about God, and that's supposed to motivate you, saying like, yes, God, I want to be right with you. I want to be right with you. I want to be right with you so bad. And now as you leave, you have to treat the people around you with love and respect. That is worship. At least in the new covenant, that's what worship is. In the old covenant, you sacrifice an animal, you sing a few songs, you dance in front of God or whatever, and then you're good with him. In the New Testament, in the new covenant, you have to love the people around you. So this changes everything. And that's why people had a, such a hard time switching gears from the Old to the New Testament. But in my observation, and I'm probably preaching to the choir, okay, but in other circ- people I've talked to outside this church, I guess, their minds are still stuck in the Old Covenant. They're looking through scripture like, oh, where, where, you know, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? And God, Jesus is saying like, we've done away with that. 
the only thing that's important is one command. How well are you loving the people around you? So when it comes to identifying, like, what am I supposed to do with my life, right? The way we approach that question changes. And I'll give you a few examples. So here's an example. Why should we tell the truth? Why should we tell the truth? And you're like, Old Covenant would be like this. Oh, I know, because there's a, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Like, nope. Paul would say this. If you reach in the Old Testament to grab a command and bring it into the New Covenant, you have to bring the entire thing over. Meaning, you can't just pick and choose which command you, com- you, you follow. If you pick one, you have to bring the whole thing over. He's like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Why should we not tell the truth? Uh, wh- why should we tell the truth? Why should we do it? And by, it's not just Paul who says that. Peter says it. James even says, if you break one command in the Old Testament, you've broken them all. Okay, so he's like, you don't want to do that. As a matter of fact, here's some bonus info, info for you. Paul the Apostle, when he's writing letters to the New Testament churches, he never ever, he says, you guys need to behave. Like, you guys got to stop doing this. You got to stop doing that. Not once in the New Testament does he reach into the Old Testament and, and quote a scripture to get people to behave a certain way. Never. Because Paul knew that if you reach into the Old Testament, and pull a verse out to say, this is why you shouldn't do it because the Bible said so, he knew that you had to bring the entire thing back into the New Testament. He never once reaches into the Old Testament to get people to behave a certain way. Never. And so neither should we. So why should we tell the truth? It's because it honors the person. It honors the person. Because when we love somebody, we honor them. To lie to somebody is to actually look at them and say, hey, I think I'm more important than you. I think my reputation is more important than yours. I think my future is more important than your future. It is impossible to love and lie to somebody at the same time. That's why we don't lie. Not because there's an Old Testament passage that says that. It's because we believe in one command, which is to love others in the way that Jesus loved, loved us, right? And that requires me to tell the truth because I want to honor the person. I'll give you another example. Why should we be generous? Old Covenant would say, oh, I know, because in the Old Testament, it says you're supposed to give a tenth. That's what the word tithe means, right? Or, or, you know, oh, there's a passage in the Old Testament where Abraham comes across this guy named Melchizedek, and after the war, Abraham gives 10% of what he has to Melchizedek. That's why. Or, oh, I know, because in the last week of the Old Testament, Malachi, um, Malachi basically scolds the nation of Israel for being so stingy with God's money. Is that why? And I'm like, those are great Bible stories, guys. That's great. Yeah. But here's a revolutionary idea, Okay. Why should, we gen- why should we be generous? Because it helps other people. I know that's, right? <laughs> this is an application of that one command. We are generous because we love people. Not because there's some Old Testament command that told us to do it. Remember, if you reach for the one verse in the Old Testament, you're reaching for the entire thing. You don't want to do that. Here's another example. Why should we not talk badly about someone? It's like, well, it's because uh, in the Old Testament it said, no, 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 no. It's because it's hard to love and talk about, uh, badly about somebody and love somebody simultaneously. You don't even need a verse for this. And by the way, <laughs> I mean, it's really hard. Okay, the next one might be a little, um, oh, good, it's age appropriate. Okay, next one. Why, should you, why shouldn't you pressure your boyfriend or girlfriend sexually? And you're like, well, I'm sure there's a verse in the Bible about premarital sex. <laughs> I dare you to look that up. I dare you to find a verse in the Old Testament that says you can't have premarital sex. I'm not saying you should. 
But if this is the way that you decide whether if you do something or not do something, right, you're going to be, okay, if this is what you're teaching your kids, if you're teaching your kids you shouldn't have sex before marriage because that's what the Bible says, one day when that kid learns how to read through the entire Old Testament, you're going to be in for a surprise. You're going to be like, Mom, Dad, I didn't find anything in the Bible that said anything about premarital sex. And you're going to have to juggle a lot of things to figure out how to get around that, okay? Why shouldn't we do it? It's because pushing your will on another person is not love. Anytime you force your will on somebody else, you're devaluing that person. And if you're devaluing a person, that is not love. You see, with the old covenant, you're asking questions like, how far is too far? How, how far can I go in my relationship before it's called sin? And I would say, that's the wrong question. That's the old covenant question. The question should be, how can I honor my partner? How can I love this person more than anybody else in the world? How can I honor this person? How can I show this person respect? Do you see how this one command could change everything? The way that we look at how, you know, how we look at our lives, how we make decisions in our lives? And this is why what Jesus said was such a game changer. And it changes everything, even changes the definition of what sin is. I don't know if you knew that. In the Old Covenant, sin is breaking God's law. Breaking God's law is sin, right? So then this is a problem in our, in our culture today because you're like, you're playing too much video games. It's like, well, is there, let's see what the Bible says about playing video games. Oh, Leviticus, there's something in Leviticus because I know there's stuff that I've never read, you know, like, you know, right? <laughs> you guys are giving each other a high five because no verses in the Bible about playing video games. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, but that's the thing, right? The, in the Old Covenant, you didn't do certain things because the Bible said so. In the New Covenant, this is the basic rule. If it's not best for them, it's sin. You don't need a verse for that. If what you're doing is not in the best interest of the other person, then that's sin. But, but, but the Bible, no, no, no. If you reach the Old Testament, you're grabbing the whole thing. You don't want to do that. It's based on this one command, love others as I have loved you. Every single time Paul wants to make a point, instead of point, pulling out of the Old Testament, you know what he says? He always says, just as Christ has done this for you, just as God has done this for you, just as, he always uses words, just as, just as, just as, because he wants us to know that our sense of morality no longer comes from commands from God. It comes from a sense of, how do I love my neighbor more than I did yesterday? How can I love people somewhat closely you know, on par with how Jesus loved us. Well, let's talk about motivation. Motivation. Why do we follow God? Why do we do the things that we do? In the old covenant, it's because it was transactional. If I did certain things right, then God's going to bless me. If I did some things wrong, God's going to curse me. And you're like, oh, you know, you're like making sure you're doing everything right. In the new covenant, it's because we're indebted to Christ. He has showed us so much kindness. He died for me when even I was an enemy of God. I did everything wrong and God still loved me. And he showed me such kindness that how could I not show that kindness to other people? I feel indebted. Paul the Apostle uses phrases like, I'm a prisoner to Christ, meaning how much he has paid for my life. I feel I'm indebted for life. I feel like I'm a slave to being kind to other people because I have to love the people because how could I not? Because God loved us, loved us so much. The motivation comes from this idea that God has infinitely loved us and that we could, we're going to spend the rest of our lives trying to repay that favor. How could we not love the people around us? By the way, 
if you're like, I'm a Christian because I want to go to heaven, that's transactional. If I say the right prayers, if I do the right things, then I'm going to go to heaven. That's transactional. The way that New Testament talks about our destination after we die is this, is I'm going to spend my life loving the people around me. And it might cost me my entire life in some cases. But if that happens to kill me, then I'm okay because I, I have this net called heaven that's waiting for me after I die. It was the icing on the cake. It wasn't the entire gospel back then. It was this side note. <laughs> but that's a whole different sermon that we have to talk about later. Okay. Accountability. How do I know how you're doing with God? In the Old Covenant, it was full of loopholes. How are you doing with God? Oh, I'm doing okay because I, 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 I put five sheep on the, on the altar and uh, I sing a few songs and I think I'm okay with God. You could be a complete jerk outside of these walls, but as long as you come to Sunday service and give the right amount of money and do all that stuff and I pray the right prayer and I did the right rituals, then, you know, there's full of loopholes. But in the New Covenant, there are no more loopholes. It's less complicated, just one command, but it's far more demanding. It is tough to be a Christian. It's far more, there's no more wiggle room. You can't say, well, technically the Bible says, no, no, you can't do that anymore. The question is, are you loving that person or are you not? Are you loving your enemies or are you not? It's far more clear, but it's far more demanding. And so I thought, well, what is the thing that we should be basing your life on like whenever you're at a at a crossroads of how i'm supposed to treat certain people or what am i supposed to do today or what i'm supposed to do with my life and i came up with this one question this one question that we should always be asking ourselves and that question is this what does love require of me what does love require of me what should i do in this situation what does love require of me should i do this or should i not do this what does love require of me And I remember at this point, I was thinking, gosh, what if, what if every Christian in the United States asked this question every day? I bet you, uh, actually, that's a sin, right, bidding. (laughs) I'm willing to make this statement, and I think it's true. (laughs) That if every Christian woke up every morning asking this question, the churches in America will be flooded with people, that we will be irresistible. As Christ was irresistible to the people around him, we would be irresistible to the communities around us. What if we got this one thing right? Jesus took this complicated system and took, made it into this one question, what does love require of me? And if he just did that, the church would be so much more, more appealing. So, faith 2.0. Love others as Jesus loved us, and that makes us irresistible. People may not agree about our stance about who Jesus is. Like, I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe that he rose from me. I don't believe in that stuff. But you know what? I sure want my daughter to marry a Christian. You know why? Because I know Christians will, will honor my daughter. I don't believe in this whole Jesus thing. I don't like going to church and stuff. But as an employer, as a boss, as a manager, I want to hire as many Christians as possible because when they show up to work, they give their 110%. And they, 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 they're clear with us and they tell us everything that's on their mind to make sure that we, we're on the same page. 
like, I don't believe in their theology. I don't believe in any of that stuff, but I would love to have more Christians work for me. Like, I, I don't know if I, you know, I believe in this stuff, but I want my kids to go to Christian school because I want them to grow up knowing how to treat people in the right way. We would be irresistible if you get this one thing right. And it all comes from the unconditional love that God has given us. And now Jesus says, with the love that I've given you, I want you to go and love the people around you. And that is how you're going to know where you're standing with God is. Amen? All right, let's pray.